0: This podcast is brought to you by the Extension and Communication for the Australian Cherry Industry Project, funded by Hort Innovation using the Cherry Research and Development Levy and funds from the Australian Government. For more information, please visit horticulture.com.au. Welcome to the Cherry Picked podcast, the podcast that brings you the sweetest insights, tips and stories from the world of cherry growing, packing and consuming. I'm your host, Jess, and I'm here to connect with growers, researchers and enthusiasts to share the wisdom, experience and innovations that make cherry growing a rewarding experience. Whether you're tending to a backyard tree or managing hectares of orchard, this podcast is your go-to resource for everything cherry related. So let's get into it. In today's episode, I catch up with a very entrepreneurial grower located in the Sydney Basin. Bill Shields is well known for his passion for horticulture and drive for R&D in the temperate fruit sector. He owns and operates his orchard with his wife, Julie, and is regularly encouraging growers and industry representatives to meet and chat about all things in the orchard. We recorded this session after a really engaging growers' meeting where lots of new and innovative orchard practices were being discussed. I hope you enjoy this episode all about agritourism, soil nutrition, and variety management. Hi, Bill. How are you going today?
1: Hi, Jess. I'm really good. I'm really good.
0: That's good. So, Bill is an orchardist in um, the Sydney Basin here in New South Wales, growing a range of different crops. Um, We're actually sitting on his back deck at the moment, looking out at his lovely orchard. You can probably hear some sort of birds in the background. Um, But today we're going to have a little bit of a chat around what interests Bill in orcharding, why he's pursued this career path, and a little bit of his... Uh, knowledge around varieties, um, soil carbon, and all things that go into maintaining his property here. So, Bill, did you want to tell us a little bit about your orchard and and how you got into the orcharding game?
1: Yes, Jess. Um, uh, the reason I'm in Bilpin was primarily because my father had been an orchard when he was uh, brought up on an orchard when he was young, and always wanted to go back to it, and um, and. Uh, We moved here in 1956 when I was just a (laughs) whipper-stapper and and I've been here most of the time ever since, other than I left the farm for a while and worked in Sydney uh, and after a number of years decided if I stayed in Sydney I'd become like everyone else. Uh, And so I came back to Bilpin. Um, I've been fortunate in that uh, in my early years I was involved in Rural Youth Young Farmers Organisation uh, and, and worked my way through to be national president. And in, that gave me opportunities to see things and visit places and travel which have influenced my direction in terms of the farm. What we have here now is a small orchard by, in relative terms, where we've got about uh, 3,500 apple trees and about four or 500 other various stone fruit types. Um, and, but all of our business is about pick-your-own. Mm. Um, in the ni- We sort of accidentally started pick-your-own in the 90s, but we were still packing fruit and selling fruit uh, direct to retailers. But we saw the writing on the wall towards the end of the 90s because of the influence of the supermarkets, and mm. we couldn't effectively comply both in the conditions and the volume of Fruit walk-high. And so basically, and and, and as it happened that Pick Your Own thing started to develop um, fairly rapidly in the early 2000s and I think part of it is about people want to come pick their fruit but we live next to Australia's biggest feedlot, Sydney, Mm. and people want to get out of it Um, and here's an opportunity to come for an hour's drive into the mountains Uh, pick some apples in a lovely environment um, and uh, get away for a while. So our business, our farm is now set up entirely around pick your own. So we have 12 varieties of apples um, uh, that cross over one another. So at any point in time, we've usually got two or three varieties going and we've got some varieties that people can no longer get in the, Supermarkets, and we've got some boutique varieties like Cox Orange Pippin, which um, particularly English people or anybody who's lived in England have got a passion for. Uh, and um, yeah, so we're we're busy from usually early February till the end of May. Mm. Uh,
0: and do you find that that the, the transition from becoming a retail supplier to pick your own was was hard or because well, you had that background? Yeah,
1: we, we'd always retailed. Mm. Uh, we'd always sold fruit in season out of the shed. Mm. Um, uh, and uh, so it wasn't that hard to do. I mean, the, the pick-your-own business uh, was building up uh, probably as at the same pace as the setting to market was was slowing down mm. and um, we sort of gave up on the market in the year 2000 when um, we were we were actually having fruit packed elsewhere and sent and ended up getting, um, uh, the agent sort of took us for about fifteen or $16,000 and, mm. which we never got mm. and we decided that that was enough and so we'd just focus on the pick your own. So, So, basically, what we've done is tried to identify what our customers need. Yeah. So, they want good uh, fruit at a reasonable price, but they also want a nice environment and they don't want crowds. So, um, we're a bit different to some of the other businesses in that we encourage people to book. Yeah. um, So, we can control the crowds. And what we're interested in is people coming back. Mm. And um, And also, we're after customers in particular who want to buy large quantities. And we have a, a strong following from particularly some of the people who came here as immigrants in the 50s and 60s from Europe. And for them, it's like going back to where they came from, you know, their village. Uh, and they're usually – they're now into their third or fourth generation, so they'll come, they'll have a picnic, and they'll pick hundreds of dollars' worth of apples. Uh.
0: And and how do you – so obviously, if you if you ever come past Bill's Orchard – um, during the during that February to April time, you'll find that it's just humming with people. Like you said, having picnics. But how do you how do you get to that stage? So, what are the first steps when someone's trying to branch into pick your own that they need to think about? And you said you've got a big following. So, does that mean you have social media? Or we
1: um, we've been particular about the way we promoted our business. Um, I was involved in, uh, and still sort of am involved in Hawkesby Harvest, which uh, the idea of Hawkesby Harvest was to promote farming and farm gate sales in in uh, the Sydney Basin, uh, which it still does. And and so we're we're on their website. Um, we have our own website, uh, which is very simple. It's basically like a blog, mm. and it's very simple to change. So I can do it on the phone or an iPad, um, regardless of wherever I am and people want to have current information yeah. um, and quite often people complain about other businesses and websites where when they arrive there um, they're out of whatever they've been advertising or um, yeah, it's they're not accurate. Mm. Um, uh, now as well as that we have developed uh, a... Uh, list of people who are on our um, on, a, on a Mailchimp newsletter. Mm-hmm. So we have about a 1,000 people on our Mailchimp newsletter list and we don't... We decided... We, we've always didn't want to invade people with social media. So, so basically we send out about five newsletters a year. We we'll send one out early in the season to say, this is what it looks like and this is what we've got a lot of. Um, and then because seasons can vary... Um, quite significantly in terms of maturity. um, When we're about to start, we'll send out another one Mm. um, and say we're going to start this variety then and then through the season we'll send out two or three more. As well as that, what we've tried to do, is we see part of our charter is education, so Mm. uh, because we can manage the numbers, it means that we can talk to people when they come and usually have time to talk to them afterwards when they ask uh, about what we're doing and what they've seen in the orchard and there's enormous ignorance about food. But so, to add to our, to add to what we do is, um, we have an open uh, we have two open days uh, at blossom time, mm-hmm. where we invite people from our um, newsletter list to come and visit the orchard. We have a free sausage sizzle. We have the time to take them around the orchard and, and talk to them in detail about the way we do things, and we we probably do things a bit differently. But as well as that, we let the children plant four potatoes each. Uh, <laughs> So they I'd can come that. back and dig uh, their potatoes when they come to get apples. We don't get lots of people, but we get... Well, we don't really want lots of people, but we get really good feedback. Yeah. And um, and people... I mean, the biggest value is word of mouth. Mm. We've stayed away from Facebook or X or whatever simply because we don't want to be constantly looking at the phone responding to things. Um And if you give people good, clear information um, and your website's up-to-date, that's all they need.
0: Yeah. And I really like the fact that when you're talking about having up-to-date information because, like you said, it's a journey then. People start to understand the growing season a little bit. If you've got them at blossom time, you can talk about what are the challenges, what actually happens to get the fruit when they're picking it off the tree and and the varieties – I think that's something that cherry growers could start to get into a bit more is distinguishing varieties and getting people excited for certain ones that are coming on. Um, so I really like that idea.
1: Yeah, well, we we um, the the interesting thing is the feedback we get after our open days. People, as a general accept people generally seem to think that growing anything's a pretty unsophisticated um, process. But when we when we walk them around and we talk to them about Pollination and the research that's been done and how we ask the kids how many types of bees there are in Australia and we talk about integrated pest management and becoming carbon positive and um, all of these things. We get tremendous feedback mm. from people, you know, like we get emails saying, that's amazing, I didn't realise that there was so much involved. And that's sort of what we want to try and achieve. I think particularly in Australia, the, the ignorance of agriculture is much greater in in the great urban areas Mm. than it is elsewhere in the world because you drive out of any major place in the world and um, you're in farming country straight away. I mean, you drive out of Charles de Gaulle Airport in France and you're in amongst farms. You drive out of – whereas Sydney, you've got to go a long way before you see concentrations of farms and things like that. And I think that has an impact on the way people think about agriculture.
2: Mm.
0: I want to touch on, and it's probably a good segue into some of the practices that you de- do here on farm, and and uh, one thing that excites me is that carbon positive. Now, we've had lots of discussions over the years around um, improving the soil, and you're very proud of what you've achieved with your soil and, and um, crop nutrition here at Billpin. What are some of the practices that you do to ensure that you have really good IPM, that you have Good soil nutrition to produce a really good crop.
1: This place is old land, mm-hmm. um, so it was farmed from probably the late 1800s or the early 1900s, and over that time, it's well in my lifetime. It's been replanted three times, so part of my task was to deal with the sins of the past, <laughs> uh, as
0: with everyone. <laughs> yeah, um,
1: and so pH has been a big issue, and and the other thing that I was always concerned about was non-specific replant disease. Yep. So rather than rip, rip trees out and replant into the same ground straight away, uh, what we would do is we would rip the trees out, get all the roots out, um, have a soil analysis done, try and replace most of the elements that we could uh, and then um, you'd apply fairly high uh, volume of lime. We might even put up to eight tonnes per hectare. Mm. Um, we wouldn't do it all in one hit. We'd deep plough um, incorporate it, um, plant a green crop and we'd plant anything. It didn't matter whether it was canola or... We'd plant a whole mixture of things um, and then incorporate that organic matter back into the ground.
0: So this is prior to planting prior your trees? Prior to planting, yep. yep.
1: Um, um, well, we'd, we'd, we'd mulch it. Um, we'd apply the rest of the lime or any other amendments we needed and incorporate that as well and we'd deep plough it. So we'd try and get stuff down eight to 12 inches in the soil. Mm. Um, and originally that was sort of, in a sense, trying to biofumigate before we knew much about it. Yeah, befo- way we- before
0: the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
1: But what, um, what um, we did was, uh, as a spin-off of that, we started to build up our high organic carbon levels um, where well, we got the material in there to, to develop um, better organic carbon levels. Um, we also um, used to muck around with um, compost teas, mm-hmm. which is a way of introducing more um, more organisms into the soil, which, which help you. And, and we're fortunate in that here's a reasonably rain a rainfall area, so mm. so that helps as well. Um, we're oh, also uh, so we've got we've now got organic carbon levels of eight point two percent. Uh, Which is bizarre. (laughs) It's just crazy And and our approach to maintaining that is to uh, ensure that everything is mulched Mm -hmm. and that um, when we mow, uh, we use a front deck mower which puts all of the material that we mow under the tree. Mm. So in a season where we get average rainfall, we can have uh, 20, 25, 30 centimetres of... Of um, plant material that's breaking down, yep. it's protecting the soil, stopping um, any erosion—not that there would be much—and mm. um, it's keeping the soil cool uh, and providing an environment for all the bugs to chew it up and turn it into organic carbon. Um, we're also um, we also the nutrition thing um, we focus a lot on because everybody seems to be. Mainly focus on NPK, whereas mm. while NPK is important, um, there are a whole lot of other things that, if they're deficient, if they're deficient because the ground's too acidic to or they're not there, um, they can they can have a in some ways a bigger impact than than being down a bit on nitrogen. Yeah, um, and I think many of the problems that people have, like. Uh, Cropping some years and not having crops the other years, I think a lot of it is primarily. A lot of it could be put down to particularly micronutrients.
0: Yeah, the trace elements. Or, yeah, yeah. Yeah.
1: So, so we've gone to uh, monitoring our soils, both our soil once a year, and 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 our tissue tests once a year, um, to look for any inaccuracies because once. If you find an inadequacy that's in uh, that's fairly high, then it's too late. Um,
0: and with yeah. those inadequacies, so a, a, a deficiency in a certain nutrient, will you then look to fertilise, or will you look at something like a soil amendment that you might be able to?
1: Um, well, what we're what we're doing is is. Um, Particularly the really soluble um, elements that wash out, like boron and zinc, um, we're using a fair bit over the top, mm-hmm. um, and and the conventional process is to apply zinc in in winter time, um, which is fine yep. uh, at fairly high rates. Um, I'm not sure ultimately if that's the only way to do it, uh, and I sort of break the rules in that. Um, zinc and boron are pretty critical at blossom time. Mm. So I'll apply boron over the top and also apply zinc sulphate, but not at the rates where it's going to burn. Yeah, and the other Yeah, and the other thing is that um, from what, what research I've looked at, uh, for instance, post-harvest uh, urea sprays, which are put onto trees to help the leaves break down and sometimes post-harvest zinc and post-harvest magnesium... Um, If they're they're incorporated with the urea, much more of the elements are absorbed into the plant Mm. rather than if you just put them on by yourself. Um, The other thing we're doing is um, we're applying a tonne of lime per year Um, because if you think about it, there's always... Your soil's acidifying all the time, whether it's what you put on it or what's breaking down into it, uh, what have you. And we're hopefully now at a stage where we're almost at a level that we want to be and we'll just monitor it and maybe it'll be every two years. Mm. Um, but we're going to keep it at that level. It's no good, I think, you know, only doing it every three or four or five years. And when you look at other industries, other agricultural industries, um, they're a lot more focused on it, yeah. in Yeah. cereal crops and things like that. They want to know what's going on all the time and there's no reason why we shouldn't be the same.
0: <laughs> and speaking about knowing what's happening on the orchard at all, all the time, I'm looking out at the orchard right now and we can see that you've got a full weather station, probes, um, and you've got leaf wetness sensors through the orchard. Do you find that that technology is a hindrance or a help when you're trying to make decisions on the orchard around you know, your nutrition? Well,
1: it's a help. <laughs> um, and, and look, I, I love technology, but I don't see that as um, being um, a place being run by a robot. It's just if you're going to make a decision about what you're doing, you need to make it from the most information that you can get. Mm. So So we've got a professional quality weather station. Um, we also have uh, a module which measures uh, soil moisture in four locations. Measures soil temperature, um, and it measures leaf wetness, and we subscribe to software which um, has got the models for literally every insect or every disease you can get. And um, what I want to do, what I've always thought about before the technology came, was being able to get up in the morning and look at your phone and see if you'd had a if you'd had a um, a spore warning for apple scab, yeah, um, or that codling moth are going to emerge. Mm. Um, now, what does that mean? That means that um, beyond basic uh, uh, fungicides um, like copper in in uh, an oil in winter uh, and some early fungicides, um, I'll just monitor. If we have a six-week period in which we haven't had an infection period, then why are we spraying? Mm. Um, uh, and if we have uh, have a bad infection period, then what we'll do is, we we'll, uh, normally I just apply simple fungicides, but we'll have something with a reach back yep. um, into uh, and that can deal with. Um, and we haven't had any issues um, with with apple scab. I mean, one of the one of the virtues of the other thing about our orchard is that pretty well all of it is trellised. Mm. Um, uh, we don't go over three meters, primarily for um, for the reasons of pick your own. But we don't. We have a very narrow um, row of trees, which is easy to spray and which dries out quickly after it rains. So the rows run north south. So they get equal amounts of sunlight. So that probably helps as well.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's a holistic, and we've always talked about that is holistic thinking about the orchard. So the way it's orientated. How the air is moving through the canopies, the way you structure your trees, and then your soil, your chemicals. Um, well, yeah, you've yeah, got to think of, of the whole system. All the science
1: is going to help that. And look, I've been, um, I'm a simple rural peasant, but I've had lots know. of, um, I've always encouraged researchers to come onto the place to do work. And the beauty of that is that I can pick their brains and learn from them. And then that can inspire me to go and look a bit further and, and read things. Um and um, yeah um, that's helped me a lot
0: I think as a researcher who has had the privilege of being able to come onto the orchard it's also we're lucky to have a grower who's interested and willing um, to learn more and that's the exciting thing and that's what we always like about coming up to Bilpin um, so I wanted to end today's chat Bill with a question for you and it's what are you most excited about for the Australian horticulture industry for the next five to ten years?
1: Well, I'm a I'm a person who sees change as the critical um, thing for people to succeed and move move on, and I think we're going to have to we're going to see a lot of changes, mm. and I think that. Um, I think that uh, what we've got to do is is particularly to get them to understand the issues of climate change. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think the other thing that, I mean, we need to come to terms with is is the issue of um, being carbon positive. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's interesting, I think, if we don't address climate change and in the processes of what we do... Um, it'll be ultimately forced on us, mm. and I think that um, the adaptation to climate change can be a bottom line thing, and it, and it's again it's applying the science, reducing the amount of stuff that you're outputting, mm-hmm. um, like chemicals and like diesel to put it on, um, and and I think that yeah that's it's exciting to me to think where that can go. I mean, we also want to advertise our business as being carbon positive. Um, And although we we can't accurately quantify it at this point in time, we hope to to soon, we believe we're at that point anyway. Yeah. Um, And if we're looking at industries like the cotton industry now, recently there's a 26,000 hectare cotton producer who are now carbon positive and Mm. are feeding 3.6 kilowatts of energy back into the grid and who are getting premium prices for their product.
0: Yeah. And that's that's the thing, isn't it? it? Yes, there will be change but it could be changed for the better and also the back pocket of growers. Well, I think
1: unless you change, you will disappear. And, and it's interesting. I mean, if we look at the US and look at the conditions that they put on uh, orchards and, and farms there now that that aren't here, you know, for instance, uh, California, I think Washington, you can't push out trees and burn them. Mm. Um, they've got to be mulched and incorporated back into the soil. That's audited. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, I think we have to adopt the things before they're forced on us because if they're forced on us, then people react against it. And, yeah, change is about education uh, and education is about understanding what you're doing and how you can improve it.
2: Yeah.
0: Perfect wo- ending words, I think. If you're ever in Bilpin, I'm sure Bill would love to see your face um, jumping in and having trying some of the Julie apples that he has here. Um, But I just want to say a big thank you, Bill, for coming on. Um, And, yeah, I really look forward to see what happens on your carbon-positive journey as we move towards the future. Thank you, Jess. (laughs) All right. We'll talk to you all next week. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Cherry Picked podcast. If you like what you heard, please subscribe so you don't miss any episodes and refer us to a friend. If you have any feedback or guest suggestions, please get in touch via the contact information in the show notes. Happy growing and we will catch up in the next episode.